All right, let's pray as we start. Father, we are grateful to be called your people at this enormous cost of uh, sending your Son to redeem us from our sin and our rebellion and, and darkness and these things. Lord, help us never forget and help us forever be grateful. Uh, protect us, Lord, from the evil of our own hearts, which we, which is still present. There it is at times. Uh, and we thank you that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus that your hands are upon us like the potter's hands are on the artwork. That's an amazing thought, Lord. Um, We look forward to the day when that work will be finished. And uh, what a wonderful thing that will be. Lord, we we pray that your name would be hallowed and lifted up uh, and set apart as the object of worship and trust in a greater measure in our lives. We thank you for your kingdom. We pray that it would come in greater power and might among us. We thank you for inaugurating your kingdom and and transferring us, Lord, from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Uh, That we are in this kingdom with all of your people around the face of this earth, and it cannot be destroyed So, Lord, prepare us uh, to suffer if necessary and to be able to uh, be faithful and confess our faith, even in the face of hostility. Uh, Lord, um, we commit ourselves to you. Help us uh, understand these subjects from your word tonight in your gospels. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we've been uh, going all the way through the New Testament, and we are at the conclusion of the Gospels, and we've kind of studied all four Gospels in parallel. And some of you are relatively new to our class. We kind of go over each section of Scripture twice, at least in the Gospels we've been doing that, because there's so much history happening with the Gospels. So we go go over them with a historical emphasis trying to understand, you know, the, the, all the historical issues and the setting and the culture and those kind of things. And then we go back and spend a little more time on key theological subjects that are in that portion of Scripture. So <clears throat> uh, this has been going on for a couple of years now. So um, what we're doing now, this is, I think, our third week, is during the last sections of the Gospels, there's some more key theological issues that are in there that I want to highlight. And uh, what we did last week was we, we looked at seeing Jesus as seeing the Father. And um, we're moving on tonight to the fact that the three persons of the Trinity are really on display in the farewell discourse in John 13 through 17, and they're also on display in a few other places in the Synoptic Gospels, and it's so cold in here, I'm going to need a tissue, because it makes my, cold air makes my nose run. All right. Are there any in the building? (laughs) Oh, ah. 
Thank you. So, excuse me. I got the itchiest skin in the world. Are you like me? You get a drop on your nose, and it just itches like crazy. <laughs> okay, I, okay, I'm not, I'm not the only one. This. All right. So, uh, our th- theological subject for tonight are the three persons revealed on the pages of Scripture are especially emphasized in in John. So, in relation to the historic doctrine of the Trinity. One of the significant matters revealed in Scripture is that we have three persons that are involved in our salvation. And the more we study the plan of salvation and see it unfold, the clearer these three persons come into view. We can study the Old Testament, and there's indications of multiple persons in the Godhead, in the Old Testament. I mean, it's there, but it isn't really clear, but it's there. You know, some say at the very beginning, you know, let us make man in our image. Well, who is the plural in that opening statement? Uh, And there are dialogues in the prophets between Yahweh and the Messiah, aren't there? Between Yahweh and the Son, and you see very clearly in those prophetic dialogues, you have two persons there. One of them is the Messiah, but sometimes the Messiah has div- divine attributes <laughs> attributed to the Messiah. And so we see Yahweh and the Messiah as separate persons. But when we get to the New Testament, where the work of salvation really blossoms and is made clear, then we really distinctly see there are three persons involved in our salvation, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they are individual persons. Okay, The Father is not the Son. You know, I am not James, <laughs> and James is not me. We are dis- distinct persons and and so it is with father son and holy spirit and so um so the easiest way to do this is just begin look at text now why are we you say well this isn't this obvious well unfortunately it's not obvious to everyone and there's been a long history going all the way back to the early centuries of denying that there are three persons in the godhead and the technical term for it is modalism, okay? And the, the modalism um, idea goes way, way back. And there's plenty of it around today, okay? especially in one branch of the Pentecostal church in particular are, are modalistic. And not, not all Pentecostals are. M- many of them, most of them, still hold the historic doctrine of the Trinity. But there is, there is one, one group that, it's quite popular that, that, that are modalists about this. They say there's not three persons. There's just three manifestations of the same person. It's like, you know, I manifest myself as a husband. Well, not any longer, but I used to manifest myself. I can't use some illustrations that are just burning my head that I used for so many years. 
So, so when I was a husband, I could manifest myself as a husband, or I could manifest myself as an engineer, okay, or if I was a fireman, I could manifest myself as a fireman. But there's still only one me, right? There's still only one person, and that's what modalism says. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are like husband, fireman, engineer. All the same person, three modes, that's the term mode, three modes of manifestation. So, uh, but that's not what we find in Scripture. So let's just plow through some of these passages, and, and we'll start with John uh, 13, 1. Very simple. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus saw that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world, what? To the Father. Well, there you go. Okay. Uh, we have Jesus and the Father, don't we? And they're distinct, separate persons. Jesus is going to depart from this world to the Father. Uh, they're, they're separate. And Jesus is the Son of God. So, 14, chapter 2, uh, 14, verse 2, I mean. I let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> There's the Son of God and His Father. Those are two separate persons. In my Father's house. That, that would be the common way you understand that. The my and the father are not the same individual. It, it, it's not. It's not hard. It's not hard to understand the motivation to deny this um, comes from a motivation to try to undermine the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, verse six. Jesus said to Thomas, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." No one comes to the Father, what, except through me. Those are two persons, very simply and plainly. Jesus is not, the Son of God is not coming to himself, uh, in, in those expressions. Uh, 14.26 is one of the key texts that brings the Holy Spirit into this, into this discussion. And your, your comments and questions, very welcome. Uh, as as we go, don't don't hold back. So uh, Jesus is talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. There you have it. They're all three. Okay. Helper is identified as the Holy Spirit. Father's going to send the Helper in the name of Jesus, the Son of God. Okay, he will teach you all things. Um, 15.10 If you keep my commandments and abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So, let's just go with the simple understanding of these expressions, and that's, that's the safe, safe thing to do. Sixteen seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. 
But if I depart, I will send him to you. And they're just clearly two separate persons. And Jesus is not sending an it. Okay, these are personal pronouns. Okay, male personal pronouns in the text. He's not sending an it. Okay, he is sending a him. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and, and judgment to come. So, uh, so now that when this is the Holy Spirit is a separate person compared to Jesus. So here we got the Holy Spirit and Jesus here. Uh, the Father is not in the formula here, but we saw that in the earlier formula. Um, 17, <clears throat> 17, 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here, but one of the, one of the things probably a modalist would argue is in all of these references where there's just Jesus is only talking about the humanity of Jesus. It's only talking about Jesus, the man. But you see, we have a passage like this, that's clearly now talking about the Son of God. Okay? So, just keep that in mind. I, I, I mean, if I were trying to argue the modalist position, I would probably try to get some traction out of the fact that, well, well, wait a minute... You know, uh, God has incarnated himself in, with the human Jesus. And so, yeah, we're not saying Jesus isn't a separate person, you see. But you need to realize when we, when we see Jesus on the pages of the New Testament, we're also seeing, what, the Son of God. And this text talks about glorify your Son. Okay, and that's not that. That son is the eternal son, not just the incar, not just the human Jesus. Okay, that son is the son of God. If we were to pull these passages together, and you're going to see it there because this son has been with the Father from the beginning. It's going to he's going to pray that right here. So you see, you see the point I'm making. Uh, <clears throat> so glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him and this is eternal life that they may know you the only God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you have given me to do And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now, here it is. With the glory I had with you before the world was. So you can't reduce this to post-incarnation. You see see what I'm saying? The second person here who is the Son shared this glory before the world began. So we're talking about two persons before the world began. And so this is one of the best passages to to deal with with that attempt. Okay, none of that's in your notes, but um, okay. This is not a comprehensive list. There's more you can pull out of these these chapters right here. 
Now, what is the most notable, one of the most notable Trinitarian expressions in all the Synoptic Gospels? It's written there in a note. That's right, CJ. That's one of the most notable Trinitarian passages, and it appears in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's let's jump over there and and take a look at that. Uh, can't believe it. I don't have it loaded. It won't take long. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> So let's spend a little time on this passage. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came to them, spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there, three names and uh, three persons, one name. Uh, This is quite a text. Uh, In the name singular, uh, it's interesting, is is the text actually saying the name is actually this Trinitarian formula? That is possible, you see, not into the names plural, it's the name singular, right? So we're getting kind of off the track a little bit. But, but uh, so here we have these three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, few doubt, but some do in this expression that the Father and Son are distinct persons. It's also clear that the Holy Spirit is a person just as the Father and the Son are persons. The Holy Spirit here surely is not an it, i.e. the force of God. Those that deny the personality of the Holy Spirit say, no, that's not a separate person. That's just like the force of God. That's the argument you'll hear all the time. If you talk to a a Mormon or Jehovah Witness and and, and some of these others, that's the argument. The Spirit of God means nothing other than the force of God. It's not, not not a person. Well, this formula doesn't make sense. We're not baptizing into a person, person, and it. Nobody would, you know, nobody would think that. Normal language, we read the normal language. You know, if we said baptize them in, into the name of, of uh, James and Marianne and, and Brian, <laughs> James, Marianne, and Brian have some type of equality to each other, don't they? Brian's not an it, okay? So you just really have to twist, you know, twist the exegesis to try not to get three persons out of this passage, okay? So, oh, look at that. Or that sound is. We will be getting a new microphone, but that's a distance problem. That snap. You never hear them in a sanctuary anymore. You know why? We put the receiver inside the pulpit and use one of the hard hard wires. So um, definitely, definitely, uh, there's three persons in in this baptism formula. Um, 
Uh, let's see. Let me go back on my notes, see if I missed any, anything. Oh, yeah, D.A. Carson makes a, makes a good comment. Quote, it is impossible, for instance, to imagine baptism into the name of God, Christ, and the elect angels. <laughs> That's when he's arguing about there's some type of equality between the three of these. And that's an interesting point. I mean, we're not emphasizing the deity of Christ in our discussion here tonight. We're emphasizing the three persons. And usually when you're trying to explain the the doctrine of the Trinity to people, and and we need to explain it, and and we need to take the time to do that, uh, I think it's always best, always is too strong of the word. I, I think it's usually best just to begin, identify there's three separate persons. Really make sure everybody's clear we got three separate persons here involved, and then begin to look at each one of them. You know, what are the attributes and what's attributed to each one of them as separate persons? And, and so, uh, uh, yeah. So, um, now it's interesting, we'll hit these kind of quickly since we're on the three persons, but the three persons appear together in many New Testament passages, and and let's blast through some of these. Just you, you feel the, the weight of how many New Testament passages these appear in. Starting, let's see, with 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, what do I got there? 4 through 6. Uh, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And we won't take the time to do it, but this is a reference to the Lord Jesus. Usually when Lord post-resurrection appears in New Testament letters, it's a reference to Jesus. Okay? So, but the same Spirit, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all, which is the Father. Uh, so we got three. There, there, there. They are. We have three persons in that in that expression. And yeah. Look at AU on that. What's that? Oh, the New American Standard. It says something very interesting. Oh, what is it? Uh, let me let me do that. Which which verse? Six. Six. Okay. There are variety of effects, but the same God who works all things. Oh, who works all things in all persons. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So, okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Still in Corinthians. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Isn't that amazing? Amen. That statement? And by the way, this is one of the proof texts that the Holy Spirit's not an it. You as a person cannot commune with an it. You know, you might be a tree hugger, and that's all right, I like trees. <laughs> but you can't this word. You can't commune. That's a person. You commune with persons. Okay? 
So I just so that's another one of these Trinitarian expressions, just on the pages of the New Testament, the, the, the three persons, Ephesians four four through six. Um, uh, this is a powerful one. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, which would be the Lord Jesus, confessing Christ as Lord, <laughs> one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Okay. These are all separate uh, items, and, and there's three persons in this list of, of ones. One God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all, uh, in you. So, Second uh, Timothy two thirteen through fourteen. Second Timothy two thirteen through fourteen. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Uh, yeah, I'm. I might have the wrong reference there. Was that? Oh, I'm. Yeah, I'm in the wrong book. Oh, that's why I didn't find it over here. I should have been looking for Thessalonians. Yeah, one more down. <laughs> there. That's why. That's why I didn't find it loose. I was. You guys let me go that far, watching me and not not help me out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, second thing. Okay, this makes more sense. What be, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, bre- brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning has chose you for, sanctific- for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit <laughs> and belief in the truth. So there you go. We don't only have one set of hands upon us. We have three sets. Right? We have three sets of hands upon us. We have three glorious, equal with the nature of God persons involved in our salvation. It's it's just absolutely amazing. And they all, I mean, we're not studying topically the whole doctrine of salvation, but when you study the whole doctrine of salvation, a very historic way of studying that was the role of each person, the role of the Father in salvation, the role of the Son in salvation, and the role of the Holy Spirit, a very good way to say it. It's laid out in the New Testament. You have three actors all involved in saving us. Um, so <clears throat> that's a great <clears throat> three persons uh, text. First uh, Peter one two. Um, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling by the blood of Jesus Christ. <laughs> there you go. Three another one of those. So. Um, Revelation 1, uh, verses 4 through 6, right there on the bottom. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him 
who is and who was and who is to come. And at this point, that's probably a reference to the Father or God. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, I believe this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, even though it says the seven spirits. Uh, that is obvious. That is a... a um, it's, it's a symbol, not literally. It's a symbol of the completeness and the fullness. That's what the number seven is. So that's probably a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, before his throne, and here's the third person, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So, so the, again, these, the list I'm giving you are not exhaustive. You, you, could, you could probably find more. Uh, so, so before we left the Gospels, we, we wanted to just show you that three persons on the face of the Gospels, and that spills over into the New Testament letters. Any, any comments or questions before we go off to our next uh, theological issue? Oh. Go with this young man first. Um, in one of the verses that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit coming out, to, uh, he will send the Holy Spirit to help you. Yes. Uh, he s- describes it as proceeding from the Father. And what do you think proceeding would mean in that way? Because we're talking about uh, the characteristics <laughs> of the Holy Spirit. The ancient know? church split over this kind of a question. <laughs> on on uh, what they what they what they split over was. Let me see if I can draw it. They, they split over this question, and the Father, is 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 the head here, and is this diagram like this? He sends the Son, and sends the Holy Spirit. Is is that how it looks? Or does it look this way? <laughs> and you know what I'm going to draw. <laughs> father and the Son proceeds from the Father. And down here is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son. Okay? Depends which text you read. And we shouldn't split over it. <laughs> Okay, but the church had a major uh, a major fight over which which of those. Okay, <laughs> Brian, I don't know if this is any less controversial. See, I avoided the whole question. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't even attempt to answer it. <laughs> well, you you gave a good answer. Right, you pointed to church history, and that's important yeah. for us to understand. Um, there are phrases, including the Revelation passage, that give the same attribute to the Father and to the Son. Yes. Um, at the very minimum, demonstrating uh, equivalence in ontology. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that expression that we started out in Revelation 1, the beginning and the end, you can show that that expression applies to deity and you can also show that it applies directly. It's applied in Revelation to Jesus. And that would be an example of what you're saying. Yeah, that's an ontological equality, meaning essence or nature. 
And uh, it's an attribute that only God can have. In other words, eternality being the beginning and the end, only God has that attribute. And if that attribute is applied to the Son, then the Son is ontologically in nature equal with the Father. And, it, and he certainly is. Uh, but he's a separate person from the Father. Okay, So, CJ, you, you had a frown on your face there. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say that. Give him, the, give him the microphone so our online people can... I was just going to say that Second Corinthians would support the picture on the left because it talks about headship. Yes, that's, that's a good point. I think you're... Yeah, yeah, and all... Yeah, that's right. Okay, any... On, on, the, on the three persons, any other, um, any other comment or question... Yeah, and we call these high Christological statements. This one sort of isn't directly under that head, but I stuck it under that head. But the next one is certainly another example of a high Christological statement. And what we mean by that expression is, you know, a lot of people have way too low a view of who Jesus is. Well, he's just a great moral teacher, or he's he's a prophet, Okay, or he's Lucifer's brother. Okay, he's an angel. You know, that we would call that low Christology. They they think too lowly, too little of Jesus, who he really is. And so this expression, I use it, high Christological statements are those that show us that Jesus is much greater than any of those. And he claims to be. And, And we have one of those statements, one more of those statements to look at. And that is, Jesus is the only way to the Father. And that, of course, is John chapter 14 and uh, verses uh, 6, around there, 6 and 7. I'll back up here just a little bit to verse 5. We are thankful for Philip's request. Show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us because that prompted Jesus' wonderful statement that, Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So thank you, Philip, for asking that question. And we're thankful for Thomas's question. Thank you, Thomas, for expressing your frustration that we don't, we don't know where you are going, then how could we possibly know the way? Because Thomas's question prompted this other answer from Jesus. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way. We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now, that's pretty clear, right? If you don't know where I'm going when I leave this room, (laughs) how could you possibly know how to get there? (laughs) And I always like to... You know, to kind of relive this a little bit, but uh, Thomas is thinking purely in a physical sense. And Jesus has already given him hints in the discourse. Hasn't Jesus already told him, told them he's returning to the Father? He has. If you, if you read all of this, he's already made it clear that he's going to return to the Father. So, So how do we know the way? So Jesus said to him, this massive claim, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So first, Jesus answered Thomas's question, where are you going? Well, there's the answer, to the Father, okay? So, but in the process of answering that question, Jesus adds more. I am the way. And it's not wrong to read this text. I am the way to the Father. I am the truth that reveals the Father. And I am the life, okay, of the Father, okay? So, you, you, you know, that's not a wrong way to read this text. That I, I am the way, meaning I am the way to the Father. I am the truth that reveals the Father. And he's also the life, that if you're going to participate in a life with the Father, that is also through me. So, <clears throat> so no one comes to the Father except uh, through me. So that is a gigantic claim. And... It's one of the most radical claims on the lips of Jesus found in the New Testament. Uh, it is especially offensive in our modern culture, which extols you know diversity and pluralism in general, and religious pluralism in particular. And it's one of the one of the highest of virtues our culture our culture exalts diversity and religious pluralism as one of the highest virtues that we could possibly have and jesus doesn't go along here <laughs> okay there's no pluralism in jesus's mind as far as the way to the father uh, so this of course is one of the most most uh, talked against or disliked or hated or statements in in all of the in all of the New Testament uh, because it's so exclusive. I want I want to expound on it a little bit further. Um, so uh, Jesus was not a religious pluralist, <laughs> nor is John fourteen six bigotry. Nor was Jesus engaging in hate speech when he graciously but uncompromisingly told the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. (laughs) See? Uh, That's so different from us having to acknowledge every expression of religion in the world. So no, Jesus was not not, uh, engaging in hate speech when he told that woman, you know, you worship what you do not know. And that did not mean that was acceptable worship. (laughs) That meant that's not acceptable worship before the God of Israel, what you're you're doing. Uh, So, um, now... um, There's no way to lessen Jesus' claim. It's clear Jesus claims to be the singular way to the Father. That this is how we are to understand the expression the way, singular, 
is clear from the confirming negative expression. No one comes to the Father except through me. If salvation is to be reconciled to the Father and live forever in his presence, which it is, then Jesus is the only way of salvation. No one comes to the Father, you see, except through me. It's the negative statements that are the most powerful defense, that that's exactly what he meant. By using, by using the, the single article, what happened to the thing? Oh, here it is. You know, the, the singular, the, the way. Well, you know, in the English language, yeah, that means there's only one, right? <laughs> the definite article. Not, not what? In English, not a way, right? A way would mean there's more than one way. So grammatically, yeah, the way grammatically means there's only one way. But for that to be followed up with the negative, no one goes to the Father except through me, is just the absolutely strongest way he could have said that. See, he could have left off that negative phrase. You know, I am the way. You know, I am the way, the, the, the truth, and the life. And he could have just stopped there. But, but he doesn't, right? He, he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, he adds, he adds that negative statement. Okay. So, um, and I want to show you, um, there's a bunch of negative statements like this that are all high Christological statements. And so we're going to hit those just now. And uh, uh, I got them right there written in your notes, but I'll throw them up. 1 John 1.18 uh, not first John one eighteen John one eighteen <clears throat> John one eighteen you see no one that's the negative he's going to put it in the negative no one has seen God at any time the only begotten Son or um, the only God who is, in, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So he begins with, and that rules everyone out, right? There's only one exception. There's only one exception. The only God who is what? At the Father's side has made him known. See, it's the same, it's the same type of thing. The negative rules every other out. <laughs> that's right yes uh, John 3.13 uh, this is about revelation uh, the knowledge of God's mind to ours no one has ascended to heaven see that but he who came down from heaven and that is a singular and of course the he here is Jesus is making that claim that is what? The Son of Man, uh, there's a textual variant here, who is in heaven. But um, So that again is making this uniqueness of one way explicit with the negative statement. Uh, 
And, and, and you know, if you're going to argue for the one-way thing, you should, you should have all of these loaded up in your holster <laughs> you know, for arguing for the one-way thing. It's not an isolated place where Jesus talks like that. Um, and so here it is in John 13. Um, no one's ascended um, into heaven. Uh, a text that often is not that well understood and should be used more is in Matthew. This is a place where Matthew kind of, if I did a Venn diagram, they would, oh, this is a place where Matthew and John overlap in, in, in this, where, where, where Matthew is coming John's way about Revelation in Matthew eleven twenty seven, And this is on Jesus' lips again. Okay, so this is a claim. This, this is a claim from Jesus. This is how Jesus sees, sees himself. Um, and uh, let me back up a little bit. It's quite the context. Um, it's a context about judgment and who knows the Father and the Son. And Jesus is actually, it's, a, it's part of a praise, a doxology is what's going on here. Jesus is, is praising God and he's addressed it to God. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight hiding things from the wise and the prudent seem good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Okay. And, and what he means here, no one knows the Son exhaustively. Okay? So that, that's what's going on there. No one knows the Son exhaustively except the Father. And here's the equality statement. Uh, there's a number of things in this text. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And what Jesus does here is Jesus claims exhaustive knowledge of the Father. Okay? Just as exhaustively the Father knows the Son, obviously, no one would doubt that the Father is omniscient and His knowledge is exhaustive, right? Okay? So the Father knows the Son exhaustively? He has to. Jesus flips it around that the Son knows the Father exhaustively. And what does that do? That's equality with God. That's equality with the Father. To know like God alone knows is to share His nature. Is to share His, it is to share His attribute of omniscience. To know like the Father knows is to be omniscient and only God is omniscient. Okay. Now the, the the issue in this text is about revelation. How do we how can we possibly know this God? Well, Jesus claims the exclusive right. He exclusively reveals the Father. No one. Oh, sorry. All right, uh, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Oh, no, we're left in the dark forever. No, no, there's hope. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. 
Okay. Now that's that's the claim. And and again, the no one says Jesus is the only one that knows in this way. And and what does that do? That eminently the fact that the son exhaustively knows the father eminently qualifies him to do what? To reveal the Father to us. That's what he's saying. He's eminently qualified to reveal the invisible God to us because he exhaustively knows the Father. That's the argument here. I don't know where the microphone went. Here it is. So. Uh, wouldn't that then mean that um, the entire revelation of whatever measure God did in the Old Testament, um, Jesus is claiming is absolutely insufficient to understand God through unless you interpret it or look at it through the lens of the sun. That's, a, that's an excellent point. Absolutely. And, and we know other scripture that teaches that, but that, that under the law and in, in the Mosaic Abrahamic covenant, all of that, there's a limitation. It's shadow and dark. It's not complete. The revelation is not complete. Uh, that, that the Father intends to bring to the world, that revelation is not complete. And that's what is so wrong with someone like Dennis Prager. You know, I mean, he, he you know, as far as natural conscience, praise God, you know, natural conscience and common grace is a great thing. I mean, I, I, I you know, I learned things from Dennis Prager as I'm driving around and listening to, listening to stations, but, but, no, he, he's in the dark. <laughs> it's, it's so sad to see that type of thing. But this is pointing out, yeah, you're not going to know the Father apart from Jesus Christ. You can have all, you know, and the, and the Jews are so weighted to the law, just to the Pentateuch, they hardly ever read the prophets. But he throw all the prophets in there too. And remember we studied last week? John the Baptist, what? Is the greatest of the prophets? And what is he compared to the least in the kingdom. The least in the kingdom is greater than John, who's the greatest. And the comparison there is this issue that you brought up, revelation, how much we know. The least in the kingdom knows more than the greatest of the prophets of the old covenant. Because we've had the revelation in the sun. The reason reason we're so much greater is because the revelation is so much greater in Jesus He's a light shining in the darkness. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are locked up in him. So, I mean, it's just crazy that there are groups that want to go back to the Old Testament and jettison the new. And that's why, you know, the book of Hebrews gives those warnings you know, in these last days, that, that book starts out, what? In these last days, what? God has spoken to us, what? In his son. And his son in Matthew 11 here is claiming to be exclusively the repository of having a knowledge the fullness of the Father is in the Son. And that qualifies him to reveal the Father to us. And um, there's other claims in this verse too. Whom what? The Son wills to reveal Him? 
And if you know Him, if you know the Father, if you're sitting in this room and know the Father, it's because the Son has willed to reveal Him to you. Think about that. That's grace. You don't have to do that. That puts Jesus in the charge. Well, he did say that, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Didn't he say that? This is a high Christological text. By the way, we did go over this uh, text before, earlier as a high Christological text. But the reason I've come back to it is this, the negatives, uh, no one, you see. Uh, the singularity of Jesus is expressed in 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 the negatives. Okay, so... All right, enough on that passage. But I hope I've brought that passage up in your mind to to use that passage more often uh, as about who Jesus is and what his claims are. This is a great one for explaining to people, you know, is it possible to know God? You can go to this one text and say, you know, it is possible to know God. Just go to this one text and explain it. It says we can know him. So, okay, uh, where are we? Um, another negative, John, John 653. Uh, and all of these are in support of John 14:6, which is the one verse that's well known, but you should be familiar with all of these. Um, <clears throat> John 6:53 reads, "Then Jesus said to them." Uh, Okay, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have, there's the negative, no life in you. So, in other words, what? There is no other way to have life. (laughs) He puts it in, in that negative construction. Unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have what? No life in you. There's only one way. There's not multiple ways to have life, see? There's only one way to have life, and that is to eat of his flesh and drink his blood. There's not multiple ways. And, and that, that's the whole point. Um, and then John eight twenty four uh, is a very weighty statement uh, that Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Okay. See? If you do not believe, that's the negative. If you do not believe, if you do that, okay? If you don't believe, you will die in your sins. There is no other way to avoid dying in your sins. See? <laughs> See, that's the point. There's no other way to avoid dying in your sins but to believe in Him. That's what he said. If you do not believe that I'm this, you will die in your sins. 
That's the point. So all of those texts go along with John 14, 6. Um, it's not like he spoke that way only once. So this is high, uh, high Christology. So the truth that there is only one way of entering the Father's house is strenuously also established by the Old Testament. The tragic case of Nadab and Abihu teaches this lesson, doesn't it? Uh, only the high priest could enter behind the veil. Um, the Bible's consistent message is God has made himself approachable, but only in the manner he has appointed. See, that's the whole thing with the Nadab and Abihu incidents. You know, maybe some of you don't remember that. That's when, you know, it's a tragic thing. Aaron is Aaron's two oldest sons. His oldest sons are, are going to be part of the priesthood being established there in numbers. And, and, they, and Nadab and Abihu, these weren't kids. These were grown men. And for some reason, they offered incense at the altar that that was not according to the law and not prescribed. And fire came out of the altar and consumed them, and they died. Okay? And, and uh, Moses told Aaron, hold your peace. <laughs> and and, and, and I, maybe, maybe God told Moses to tell Aaron to hold his peace, whatever. But, but the statement that, that, that the Lord made was to Moses... By those who draw near to me, I must be regarded as holy. That's what the statement was. And what did that mean? To regard God as holy is to draw near to him only in the way he has prescribed. That's the lesson. And that comes to its fruition in all these statements right here. Jesus is the only prescribed way. And you can with confidence draw near to the Father in Jesus' name. But zero confidence <laughs> any other way. And all I'm saying here, I'll get one second, is this idea that comes to expression in Christ himself is already established in the Old Testament. It helps us understand this exclusivity is all there in the Old Testament already, you know, with the high priest only and so forth, right? It's, it's on one hand, difficult to understand the severity of God here, but when you take an approach of creation and how imaginative God is in creation, his variety is, is infinite. Mm. He's created so many ways. Then he creates man in his image, and man in his image is given this creative aspect one of those aspects is the idea that man can create ideas. He can create thoughts. Mm. A fallen man with the image of God in him is going to create an unlimited number of ways to come to him. Yeah. So God must take us back to, you yeah. can't use this fallen, corrupt nature to try to come to me because you're going to mess it up. Yeah. And that's why he said, you have to understand. It's not that you know I could create a couple ways. I got to only create one way or your imagination is going to mess it up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he saves us. He informs us how we can be saved, not vice versa. 
We're not informing him how we can be saved. A lot, well, that's what a lot of false religions want to do, and that's what, what we even want to do until, you know, we want to inform him how we are to be saved, but that's completely upside down, and it's doubly... Up, I, that would also probably be upside down before sin entered, but now that sin is entered, that is really upside down. Uh, yeah, so... Any any uh, comments or, or, or questions on on the high Christology of these two that we've studied tonight. Yeah, Alexis, you got someone? We've got two comments. One from my dad. He said, John 1, 12 and 14. And the other one from someone named Zenaida Dicoco. That's my sister. Oh, okay. oh, that is your sister, Marianne? Yes. She said, if only the teachers of law and the disciples were paying attention to what Jesus is saying, they won't be puzzled with his statements. What was the last word? They won't what? Statements. They won't be puzzled with his statements. Oh, if they were listening, they would not have trouble with his statements. Yes. Very good. Very good observation from the Philippines. <laughs> what is your sister's name, Marianne? Zenny. Okay. Well, Zenny, we are, we are delighted that you are with us. And, and your sister is really special. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes, from your, from your dad, Alexis, uh, John 1, uh, 11 and 12. Was that a question or he wanted just, he wanted to contribute that? Yeah, just contributed. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's read that text. Um, let's, let's throw that up. John. One eleven. Not John eleven one. <laughs> Man, am I dyslexic? <laughs> Might be. John one eleven. Yes. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. That's a reference to the Jewish people. He came. He came to the Jewish people. They they did not receive him. Uh and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them, the ones that received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, uh, to those who believe in his name. Okay, And they weren't born of any of this stuff, but of God. Okay, yeah. And uh, oh, this is a wonderful verse, <laughs> but it's 8.10. But the, the, you know this. You know uh, this is a better translation. Old King James had power here. To them, he gave the power. But but this is not dunamis here. This is exousia, and right right means like warrant. You know we know you know right is like warrant or, or justification, and you see when we're convicted of sin. It's like, what right do I have to become a child of God? I have no right to be a child of God. What's amazing is he gives us the right that it's just for me to become a child of God. That's what he's saying. It's just for me to become a child of God because Jesus Christ gives me that right that warrant to come. 
So it's, it's just a wonderful statement. And if you're an assurance doubter, um, think about that. He, we're given the right to come. See? We forfeited all our rights, correct? Adam and Eve forfeited all the rights for the human race. So, oh well. Okay, I think, I think we, need, we need to stop. So these are wonder, wonderful things to, to think about. So, uh, okay. Who is he going to have pray for us? I'm going to bring it back to Hugo. He's been very quiet back there. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, this time and this hour and to study all that you have done, Lord. Um, and the promises that you made, Lord, in, in the Old Testament of fulfilling them and sending your son Jesus, the perfect one, the redeemer, the holy one, who would accomplish your will, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for even making a way, for you did not have to. You would be just in casting us aside, Lord, into flames forever. And yet, Lord, you had mercy on sinners such as us. We thank you, Lord, for this truth. We thank you, Lord, Holy Spirit, for uh, inscripturating your word and putting this in our hearts for those who know you, Lord. We also, Lord, ask for traveling mercies as we leave from here. And please, Lord, the rest of our week, let us reflect on these things in this Christmas time to consider uh, the Advent and the miracle, Lord, that we needed and was promised uh, by you, Lord. We ask all these things, Lord, in your Son's holy, holy, holy name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.